0: all this is gonna do. Okay. Well like then we p- can turn
1: the on
0: Yeah,
2: this one is on for sure, there. Yeah. So you guys can do that one, I'll do this one, and then if we need to pass it around.
3: Don't be surprised if the speaker has problems on you. Okay. It's been going in and out all week. Oh, fun, okay. So, there's a guy sitting right outside
2: that door. He's okay. ready. He's ready. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. All right, Well, they're recording the session so oh, we have to use the this microphone. Is true. <laughs> I true. I think they should let it go, but I, I just, Yeah, cuz otherwise all three of us are in time to no One. 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 Yeah. You know. Know. oh yeah people coming. But he's real quiet this morning
3: when i i i do <laughs> 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 there was a walking tour scheduled at 7 and you were like no. yeah
2: it's like nah it seemed no. like a great idea at the it time when i signed I up
0: i can't do
3: it
2: Okay, Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and start. Good morning, everyone. And... um, I'm glad to have you here at Engaging K-16 through through Creative Connections to History. I'm Kate Betts. I'm the head of education and interpretation at the Bullock Texas State History Museum right here in Austin. Um, and I have with me two of our partners on this project, Celanger um, Santiso Black, who's a fourth grade teacher at Galette Elementary School, which is... Um, Just up the road and Alexander Robinson who is a professor at St. Edwards University that is just down the road (laughs) and they um, we are here kind of representing the trifecta of partners who took part in this project. Um, I'm going to just start this slideshow so that we have some pretty visuals going on in the background behind us. Um, We're going to start with kind of a general overview. Oh, that's what I did. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're going to start with a general overview of the project and then we'll do some kind of round-robin questions, I sort of hear it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh hey, there we go, okay, um, Oh. okay, all right, so I'm going to pretend like I sound normal and it's cool, um, I'm gonna start with a general overview of the project and then we're gonna do kind of a round robin of questions that um, that each of us will address from our own particular institutional perspective about the project. Um. Yeah, so let's go ahead. Oh, it's not, <laughs> okay, I thought it was playing. See, I did that thing where it was auto-playing, and then I dared to pause it, and now it's not. So give me a sec. Ah, okay. Okay, so the Bullock Museum decided that we were gonna take an exhibit called State of Deception, The Power of Nazi Propaganda in the fall of 2016. Um, if you'll jump in the Wayback Machine with me, you'll remember what happened in fall of 2016 besides us doing an art installation. <laughs> uh, and that was the election. Um, we didn't know at the time because we booked the, we booked the exhibit three years in advance. We knew it would be election, but we w- didn't know it would be this particular election. Um, so just know that that was super relevant as we were getting to installation phase. And everything was happening. Um, But we really need to back up because this project took almost a year um, from inception to completion and so we'll do just that really quick timeline. (coughs) So in the fall of 2015 the Education Department and the Exhibits Department started talking about okay we're going to have this exhibit that has some content that is going to be very important for families and teachers to engage with but very hard for families and teachers to engage with, particularly for our audiences that are more, um, that have not been pre-prepped to to typically talk about difficult history at the Texas State History Museum. Um, So knowing that um, if we're distilling it to its essence, propaganda is words of hate used for power, then how can we talk to young children about how to counter Words of hate, well, we should counter them with words of love and hope and tolerance and talk about how one person's actions matter. One person's actions, though they may seem small, combined with other people can lead to something big. So I called up (laughs) my friend Bill Kennedy at St. Edward's University, who works with Alex, and said, we've got this crazy idea, we really want to do something visual, that talks about hope and tolerance, that combines the power of words with another creative medium, art. So are you on board to talk about it? So Bill talks to Alex. They came to meet with us a few weeks later. Uh, So this is December (laughs) of fall 2015, and they got everything together so that spring of 2016, they had created a class that students had signed up for at St. Ed's to go with us on this journey to create an installation. Um, So, yeah, really, in some ways, this is, like, a ridiculous project, right? Um, (laughs) um, So Alex's class starts meeting. They start talking about design. um, Do you want to jump in and do this part? Okay.
0: So uh, the students – so Kate is right, December. (laughs) I was panicking, but my my father is an educator in high school and had taught a sort of uh, AP or extra class on the Holocaust, and so – um, he had this binder of content that he had collected, and, and, but his was literature-based. But, but it helped me sort of get a sense of how you can talk about this topic without comparing it, because that's one of the big things, you can't compare it to contemporary times, right? So um, so I was sort of devouring his material and trying to figure out like how to do this with college students. And then I teach an installation class. Um, sort of every other semester and it's project based, but this was thematic and it needed to happen over an entire semester and I needed the students not to just make a th- like a pretty thing, they needed to make something that had meaning. So um, I broke the course up into three sort of sections. So there was content development or learning about the history and I invited um, my peer, uh, art historian, a communications professor to talk about propaganda, um, an artist who currently photographs survivors of the Holocaust, um, And another uh, alumni who does um, large-scale artwork and has uh, sort of a uh, more national platform to come and interact with the students. And then um, the students were keeping journals. They were reading um, primary research and um, were discussing this stuff. And then the second portion of the course was design. We started visiting the Bullock, doing formal presentations to the staff, which they were Totally freaked out by because uh, at this point they've only gotten up and given speeches in front of their faculty or our peers, um, and then the the implementation of the design was this sort of the the second half and um, so yeah that's yep. kind of gist of it.
2: And what what you see on the table they we really treated this like a professional project for them. So what was really exciting for us was to get to work with students who were doing something that was going to matter on their resume, that was going to give them a really awesome, very real-world experience. Um, And so they produced the kinds of things that you as an artist would produce for a client. So first they came in with sketches, uh, then they ultimately came in with maquettes. So this was the winning maquette. We still have it right here. Alex is amazed that we still have it, but she doesn't understand that museum people are hoarders. (laughs) Um, So you guys are not at all surprised uh, that we still have it. Um, And so that was a really great experience for those students to be able to go through that process. Um, That was spring semester. She also had students stay on for the summer to help with the actual creation and installation. Um, And so that was the the college component. Backtracking again, we knew that if this was really going to be um, a project that we could say represented a big portion of our community, (coughs) <coughs> we needed it to be en masse. When we created our understanding with St. Ed's, we said, okay, the Bullock Museum is going gonna, is gonna to work really hard and we're going to gather 1,000 butterflies, and that felt like a really big number. Um, we created um, a simple lesson plan that we sent out. It had really basic description of the project. It had some historical connections that were pretty basic, and it all keyed into a poem called If I Never Saw Another Butterfly, um, which was written by a young man in a concentration camp in Poland, um <coughs> which basically talks about how there are no... I saw a butterfly and then I went to a ghetto and there was nothing beautiful anymore. Um, it, was, it was kind of the arching theme that brought everything together for us uh, because it was done through an art teacher who was herself in the ghetto who had smuggled creative materials in. So if you've seen, there's a publication there, photos, there are poems, there's all kinds of things, and we keyed off of this one. Other places, the Houston Holocaust Museum have done similar projects. This was our iteration of it. Um, So we thought that a lesson plan was important and we made it general enough so that it could be scaled up to older students, it could be scaled down to younger students, it could be done by a language arts and social studies teacher, it could be done by an art teacher, it could be taken on by an entire school. We really tried to make it as accessible as we could um, so that the greatest number of teachers would would come along with us. Um, So then we took our leap of faith and we took our, uh, our list of everybody who was coming on a field trip between March and May and we sent them all an email and said, we're doing this, and we really want you to do it as a class, as a school, as individuals for a home project, and we want you to bring your butterflies with you when you come. I think we sent that in February? Yeah. Yeah. So the schools that were coming in March had about a month to get everything together. The schools that were coming in April and May had a little bit longer. Um, And then we just kind of (laughs) hoped, because this was a project about hope, we hoped that people would be excited about doing it. Um, And so then they started to arrive, and they started to arrive, and we started logging them and counting them and creating a spreadsheet, and pretty soon we had more than 5,000. So we were pretty excited (laughs) about that. Um, And they looked, you can see a few. um, Some of them were purely colorful and artistic. Some teachers, you can tell, created a particular assignment. So this one has writing on front and back. One is the, this is the best case scenario. This is the worst case scenario. Some um, some kids processed the history lesson that they had gotten. So we had to have internal conversations at the museum about, is it okay to put up a butterfly that has a swastika on it? Because they've that's what they've been learning and that's how they're processing. Um, we decided it was okay because this is the way that students were processing it. And so as long as it was this kind of... Point counterpoint, a lot of them were thinking about the front of the butterfly is one thing, the back of the butterfly is another thing. Um, and we didn't wanna be the ones to decide to censor a student's process of how they were how they were feeling about this. So if that was their way of processing it, um, we decided to keep it in. I know other places might decide to make a different choice, but that's, um, that's what we did. Um, in addition to those 5,000, Alex's students made another 1,000 origami butterflies, which were on the flip side of the panels that you see here. So they're represented by the yellow side. The students are represented by the colorful side. Um, So it was an enormous undertaking for us, but it was so so amazing. It felt so powerful. We did it at family programs throughout the summer as well. So we had a chance for parents to be able to do this. We really, (coughs) a goal for our department was to try to make sure that all of our educators could get involved and think about their own audiences and how we could translate. Um, so, you see right there, conveniently, <laughs> uh, is a, uh, a father and his children making butterflies. Um, some people who came to our family programs didn't want to give up their butterflies, um, which we decided was okay, um, because that too is a part, you know, that's just a larger part of the installation and a larger impact ultimately. If they put it up on their wall at home, that's okay. I'm not going to make a four-year-old cry because they spent 30 minutes coloring a butterfly and their parents talked to them about hope and tolerance. And then I said, I am not tolerant of you keeping your butterfly. (laughs) So it went up. um, This installation went up on the 11th of September, 2016. We've now made it to the slides there. Uh, I think Alex will echo me that it was one of my most um, nerve-wracking days um, because Our exhibits department are amazing and they designed a rigging system in our rotunda to hang these panels. There were six panels to represent the six million Jews who were killed during the Holocaust. Um, And we put each panel onto the rigging system and then essentially had to take a leap of faith and drop it down into the rotunda. Um, But as you can see, it all worked out. (laughs) Um, And so this installation stayed up Uh, through the whole run of State of Deception. So that was September of 16 through the very beginning of January 2017. Um, And we included one additional component in the State of Deception gallery. uh, And that was a word wall. So if you hadn't had a chance to take part in making a butterfly, we still wanted to key back into this idea of words of hope and tolerance and peace being powerful and taking your one word and combining it with the words of others. So we had a word wall, which uh, sort of more geometrically represented a butterfly. We created these um, diamond shaped acrylic tiles and etched words into some of them. We left a number of them blank. So for a few programs during the run, we let people write their own words. So it was a little bit more than a single word. And then you could hang it and leave it. Um, Every couple of days we would take most of them down and let the process start again. Um, But that was an attempt to tie what you had seen when you first enter the museum, because the the panels were hanging right in our rotunda right as you come in, with this concluding experience at the end of the State of Deception exhibit. I'm gonna let saint talk a little bit about um, the classroom component, because they, as you also saw uh, in the slides earlier, Made their own mini installations. So al- we saw a lot of teachers, especially if a whole school did something, they did something at their own school before they sent them into us.
1: Okay, hello. Um, so my school has a fine arts extravaganza every year. And I teach um, a World War II kind of thematic unit where we read different um, um, literature about um, different parts of World War II. So the Holocaust comes up and also with resistance people, and that's a, a big thing that the children are actually interested in fourth grade in reading. And also just um, survivors, so post stories about how sur- they survived the Holocaust. And so we, and even nonfiction um, literature about um, just how the war went. So students read all of this, and it happens at a time of year when we did this fine arts extravaganza at the end of the year. And it just coincided very, very well with um, what the Bob Bullock was doing with the Butterfly Project. And I went to a meeting, and, they, and I got an email. And they said, you know, this is something that you can do. You can do this thing, read this poem, you know, talk about hope and tolerance and courage and life beyond, you know, um, atrocity. And we went forward and did that um, in class. I added the poem to all the other pieces of literature we were reading um, which included Number of the Stars, The Greatest Skating Race, um, and um, oh, oh, now I'm forgetting it. It's the one about the prince, um, or King Christian the 10th, um, The Yellow Star. I don't know if you know that story about him showing resistance in Denmark, and it's, people don't know if that's a true story, if it really happened that he wore the yellow star to defend the Jews of Denmark. Um, against the Nazis when they came in. It's a great story. Um, so that's another form of resistance. And so we read, read stories like this, and we had added this poem, and the, st- the children really got excited because they realized more and more that other children could stand up for other children, but that wasn't necessarily happening happening all the time in Nazi Germany. In fact, it was the opposite. So they were amazed that that happened because they have been studying so much about how we need to stand up for each other at school, be kind, be aware. If someone is being bullied, we defend. It's been like a thematic unit for for really for the past three years, definitely at my school. We have programs that come in to kind of teach that and we teach it um, through our four community agreements. Um, which one includes mutual respect um, and active listening, which doesn't mean just listening to your teacher. It also means listening to what's going on around you and not just going into yourself. So, they we added this experience, and we basically said, you know, we read the poem. You know the background. So now, create your own sort of vision of hope and dreams um, for your future. And translate that to what those children may have been feeling when they were in the ghetto, and they were in the concentration camps, and they did not have those hopes and dreams like just available to them anymore. They felt like they were gone. So kind of em- like embody that and see what comes out. And so from kindergarten to fourth grade, you can imagine the difference. We had just beautiful like you know scribbly colors all over for kindergarten. Um, and just like, I'm happy, the future is there, I can do it, I'm embracing, you know, the past and understanding it and being aware of what happened, and I will also be aware (laughs) of my fellow peers and community around me to just words, where they wrote words and pictures, because that's what they wanted to do. We had students who brought their own crafts um, because that's what they like, And, and they put like Feathers and beads and lots of glitter. There was lots of glitter Uh to where the point where I was worried that it could not be installed in the final
2: project. But But that was that. It looked beautiful. It it reflected the light. It was great.
1: Yeah, and that's what you know. That definitely you know symbolizes hope (laughs) for many many. Um, little girls and boys they would just love the glitter aspect. Um, so we made all sorts of materials available and they brought some stuff from home. And so that was f- something that um, was it was just amazing to see and you know we had a lot of discussions and um, it, we put up these butterflies. Um, I don't know if the slide already passed, but you might have saw a slide where there was this tree. We kind of made this tree. <laughs> uh, we made this tree at our school on one of the windows, and we put the butterflies all around with the poem by Pavel Friedman um, in the center, like, like the hollow of the tree was his poem. And so we created our own kind of art project before it actually got to the museum. And um, the night of the fine arts extravaganza, we laid out uh, more butterflies for people to then make their own. We explained why, it we were doing the project, and so more people came in and they added on to it. And um, in Austin, we have studio tours where you can kind of go around and see different arts um, at, at certain weekends. And one of the week, our fine arts extravagance actually landed on one of those weekends. So people that were interested in art in the community could just walk into our school and see this work. And so it was a really, really amazing experience for our kids, but it really culminated when then we went to the museum. Because it wasn't just, this is something we're doing for school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is something that we learned about hope and courage and to relate to other children who experience atrocity. It went beyond. And yeah, that's the um, tree. And um, that's. delivering their butterflies And yeah. And so um, when they finally saw that their butterfly was up and they were part of something bigger, that it went beyond their school and it wasn't just an assignment and it wasn't just a small grade in their grade book, that's when they were like, wow. I mean, really, it was amazing for them to see that they were – it was something bigger. And I think that was really helpful. And then they got to go through the propaganda, the Nazi propaganda um, exhibit. And it was just – They really internalized the whole experience and I would love to do something like this again. (laughs) It was very nice, good experience.
2: I don't know, I don't even know if this is, anyways. Okay, so um, we're gonna transition to kind of doing a little bit of back and forth on questions. Um, If you guys have questions that are sparked by some of the questions or responses, I really want it to be, open so please just pop up your hand and we'll bring you into the conversation as well. Um, We wanted to start pretty basic with why did we want to do this project and I think we've covered that a little bit in the overview but I just want to make sure to reiterate from the museum's perspective we wanted to provide an accessible entry point for teachers and parents to talk about the Holocaust generally and Nazi propaganda particularly and propaganda in general and what it can do how it uh, plays with f- with half-truths. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's completely false. It simplifies a really complex topic into something very um, easily digestible. Um, it plays on people's fears. So all of these things we wanted to talk about how words matter. All of this is about words matter. Um, We wanted to encourage an understanding of the connections between past events and contemporary issues. So we're talking about the Holocaust, but we're also talking about intolerance. We're talking about bullying. We're talking about hate speech. Um, So you saw some of those examples in the classroom um, carried out. Uh, We wanted to use the power of art to open up conversations. So we saw that in the way that students were creating their butterflies and processing what they were feeling and in the kinds of classroom activities that they were doing as a result. Um, we wanted to demonstrate that individual action makes a significant impact on larger issues um, so that when when a student is saying, this seems so big, what can I do about it as an individual? Um, we hoped that this would be a visual demonstration that you may feel like your one little thing doesn't make a difference in and of itself, but that combined with a lot of other people who are brave enough to do an individual thing, then it can be something really big. Um, And finally, we wanted to celebrate empathy and emphasize history's relevance to today. So if this is all about understanding what someone went through to help you become a better citizen, then, I mean, that's like, the cherry on top, right? Um, so from our perspective, that's really what we wanted to do. And because we're a history museum, we knew that we couldn't do it by ourselves. And so that's why it became so important to work with um, with great partners. So I'll hand it over to Alex so that she, from her perspective, can talk about why she and why St. Ed's wanted to do this project.
0: So St. Edward's is a Catholic uni- university um, and the, the mission of the institution to, is to cultivate thoughtful minds, caring hearts, and clarity and leadership. And I have, um, at a previous institution, had experience with service learning projects. So it's like social interaction, or um, they're like high impact learning practices where you're going out into the community and you're interacting with another organization. And so at St. Edward's, I hadn't done anything quite like that um, at this point when Kate and the museum came to went to Bill, and then Bill came to me. Um, So my interest was sort of to get back into that idea of these high-impact practices that have a larger scope. The students are used to this kind of um, content in the sense that um, social justice is a huge component of the general education at St. Edwards, and so um, there are lots of uh, courses about uh, our American experience and American dilemmas and so and they touch on issues of race and culture and, and religion and things like that and so um, what I wanted to do was take that same conversation and just use it from a practice of art and so uh, sometimes uh, people really think that art is just about making things that make people feel happy and that is not true so um, so anyway that is sort of the the perspective I had and then I have a personal one my father is Jewish my father's family is Jewish. He had taught this class, and it was sort of a way for me to carry forward his education and teaching of other young people, and so I sort of jumped on it. But So I, I'm very
1: interested as well in connecting the community to our school and the kids to the community, and so I've done like service projects in the past that are similar um, to this, and this just really felt like something that our students could – um, really learn from in tying in with the whole thing of being not just um, a bystander but being proactive um, participant in their society. And so I wanted them to learn about, as I said before, the past and what happened to these children and the people of in Europe um, that were persecuted and went through this atrocity. And then kind of related like this can happen again and it can happen on a small scale and it can just happen like on the playground or it can happen you know as a whole society and they started making connections to where it's happening in our society and um, that was for me one of the reasons why I wanted to do this project because I knew that that would happen they they would see that what happened with the Jewish people in Europe and what happens, what's happening to certain individuals and groups of people in our country today are very similar. And so they made that relationship. And that was, for me, very powerful. So I knew that that would come
2: from doing this project. So we also knew that a creative medium was going to be really important for this project. Um, for the Bullock Museum, one of those reasons was because, because we are a state agency, and so um, our mission is to educate the public, and it's not necessarily to be advocates, um, but we are able to do more if we're creating something that um, begs a question, and then people uh, can draw their own conclusions. So we knew that if this was a straight-up history lesson, First off, it wouldn't be nearly as effective, but it also, we would be more limited in what we could do as far as then and now and think about what's happening then and now. Um, We can say, this happened, (laughs) Um, which is not as effective. So um, for us, uh, that that was a component of consideration for us and it was also just knowing that power of art. And if we're thinking about a multidisciplinary lesson, and we want to involve as many people as possible, we we knew that this would be a way for that to be easier, and it wouldn't be something that only social studies teachers are gonna look at because it's put out as a history lesson. Language arts teachers are gonna do it, art teachers are gonna do it, et cetera. So for us, that was a big consideration. Um, But then I would also turn to the two of you and think why in particular um, did a creative medium work for a topic like this?
0: Um, I teach an installation class, like I said, and it's a project-based course. But this one was different, obviously thematic, in the sense that we were sticking to one solid thing. Um, the student, like the class, was. Interesting. I had seniors and I had freshmen. So one of the things that we talk about a lot in our area is the use of visual language and encoding and decoding. And so um, I knew that there were varying uh, levels of experience with this and varying levels of critique in the sense of um, students being used to the, the process of being criticized for the thing that they made. Not them being criticized, but the thing being criticized. And so I needed to get them quickly to get outside of that. So. I had the students, I mean, we did the readings, and but then I immediately um, in tandem had them making things so that they could g- sort of stop thinking that this was about me. And so some of those images are there where um, we sort of took over this science building at St. Ed's that had a, um, a circular stairway and we were hanging things because they needed to work out problems and they needed to work out form and they needed to work out, you know, the th- fact that their thing was so cool. Um, But the other thing I like about the art medium itself or the way that you can take a very serious thing and and translate it into a visual language is how all these signifiers work. And so for us, that was a huge component. So the dark to light or the inside versus the outside or the colorful versus the not colorful or the the sort of stagnant yellowness or the yellow as a a star of the night. Or um, one of the things that came a lot later in the process of the semester was um, imprinting Onto the Golden Butterflies, uh, a, a Hebrew prayer. It's the, the, um, the yeah, the Mourner's Kaddish. And, so, and, um, and that came from a student who was Jewish, or she is Jewish. She was in the class, of a full participant, but she was like, there's something that's missing, and I don't know what it is. And then it immediately started to come up like, oh, there's this other element that we're missing because we're saying all these things in this visual way, but we need uh, this other tie. And it's not that anyone else would necessarily know that, but it becomes this sort of textural element and there's a, a bunch of that repeated throughout the, the sort of the panels as you walk around. But
1: um, In our classes um, at GLED and really all over Austin ISD, um, we teach our students to respond to literature through visual representation. So this was just another way for them to do so, but it was a little different because it wasn't they they were confined to the butterfly that shape s- but so they didn't have that ex- freedom of expression that we normally give them but it was interesting because they then still did their own representation and their own visualization of how what the poem and the literature we had been reading really meant to them so e- they um this was just something that was really just coincided well with what we normally do and it's very important to I think to have um, children have this creative outlet not just pen and paper and comprehension questions about what they read and in history and in language arts or science and any other core subject they really do need a creative outlet um, because multiple intelligences there's many different types of learners and so The creative outlet um, of expressing themselves after reading um, some of these things that really some of these students didn't know about the Holocaust before this. And so they were kind of like needing that outlet to express, you know, maybe some pain or some um, amazement that this even happened. That was the thing that I think was more. amazing to just realize is that nine and ten year olds cannot fathom that such evil had existed and um, tying into some other um, thing that is september 11th that's another thing they can't believe that happened a lot of them don't know about it the students i'm teaching this year were born in 2008 and they they don't know you know a lot about what happens in the world so creating something is a way to kind of like process that out. It's like a social and emotional learning thing that they have to do. Um, and so it has to be part of not just when they're reading nice realistic fiction about, you know, you know um, Ramona <laughs> and, um, and Ramona the pest. They need to do it for historical fiction as well as historical, you know, nonfiction pieces. And it just really helps them because they are dealing with a world that's very different and than we, I think, did when we were younger. Um, and so there's a lot of obstacles. And so creating something really helps them.
2: So we've been talking real fluffy about how great it was, um, but now I wanna just sit a little bit in the challenges of the project because it would be unrealistic to stand up here and say everything was beautiful the whole time, don't worry about it. Um, so I'm kind of asking a two-part question here, and and one is, you know, what were the challenges over the course of the project, and what have been some of the unexpected outcomes of the project? Um, for us, a big challenge was the timeline, um, so we were having to very aggressively get our senior management excited about the project and willing to go along with it, because we had points where Alex's students would come and make a presentation and I literally had two days to get everybody who had been in the meeting to give me their comments and pick the one that they liked the best and move forward. Because we had to move forward if we wanted to meet this timeline. It wasn't a project that we had three years to put together so we could kind of sit in it and make everybody feel good about it. Um, I'm sure Alex will talk a little bit about (laughs) some of the design changes um, that we got to. Um, But for us that was a big challenge. We were. We were financially really lucky that we are, as a museum, um, in the process of an IMLS grant, which is about expanding um, our reach to families through expanding our family programming. So we were able to um, to use this as a big part of that grant. Um, so what what would probably have been a challenge to us otherwise, um, we were able to, to get those supplies and um, work with St. Ed's, um, but that's definitely something to consider. But it's also, I mean, hearing how powerful just a single school's installation was, um, I do think that a project like this is scalable, so we certainly had a large-scale project, but I don't think that that means that a smaller-scale project would not have had an equal impact. We had about 100 schools who participated. The bulk of them were in the Central Texas region, um, but we did have we did have schools kind of in some ways representing the four corners of Texas, um, particularly because it was spring semester. We see a lot of schools who come on multi-day field trips to Austin because they're visiting the Capitol. So we would have schools from Brownsville who are providing us um, with a box of butterflies as they come up and tour the Capitol and go to Schlitterbahn (laughs) and go to the Bullock. Schlitterbahn's a water park for those of you who are not (coughs) um, from Texas. so we had about 100 schools and then we had um we we at, when we did these as family programs we did them at our free first Sundays and so we probably had another um another 5 to 600 individual families who made them as a result of that <laughs> it went we targeted the schools that we knew were coming on field trips so we sent the email to confirmed reservations. Um, we also put it onto our website as a downloadable lesson plan and gave them an address and gave them a deadline. So we did receive some by mail. Um, we thought about just kind of scattershotting it out, um, but there are literally thousands of fourth grade teachers in Texas. Um, and we, I, th- I think part of the success was that we, we took the time to specifically address those emails. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a blanket email dear teacher. Um, we, we had a template, but we you know we MailChimped it right And so we <laughs> so we put <coughs> their individual name in and Caitlin, who is our school curriculum manager, if she already had a relationship with that teacher, she would put in you know a, a short additional note like looking forward to seeing you again this year. Hope that you can take part. Um, and we just stayed in touch. So it was a time challenge in that regard because we took the time to personalize it, but I don't think that we would have seen the return if we hadn't. Um, We had to figure out a place to store 5,000 butterflies. Um, We had to figure out a place um, for six weeks over the summer to be able to extend um, eight by 40 foot panels. Um, part of that happened on the St. Ed's grands, grounds, but part of that happened in a space that we allocated. So we were um, we were coordinating with other departments to make sure that our special events department wasn't renting out the big space that we had uh, the banners in. We were coordinating with our exhibits department to make sure that they had the time to figure out what the suspension system was going to look like. Um, it forced everybody to talk to each other, which in some ways is a challenge, but was super powerful because then we had three whole departments worth of people who were really proud of a project and were telling people about it in the community. Um, so I think that turned from challenge into opportunity. And to your point about doing something else, everybody is already trying to figure out what our next thing is gonna be. Um, I don't know that it'll necessarily be as um, big. <laughs> yeah, good call. Um, but it's it's really made us shift our thinking in terms of, um, what an education department project can grow out to. Um, I'll turn it over. Sure. Uh,
0: okay, so the way that I set it up was that the students could come up with ideas and it was a free-for-all <laughs> in a way, organized chaos. Um, but really there were seven ideas that went to the Bullock administration. And then w- yeah, I, I made like a Google uh, uh or so, I don't know. I made a thing that they could fill out and give us feedback. And then the students took it and decided, OK, they don't like that. They don't like that. But they like this. And then so, so they reorganized uh, themselves. And they figured out that they could make a thing. My, my biggest issue was that I had these students from January to May, mid-January to the beginning of May. So I really only had them for about three and a half months. And I needed them to understand, make a decision, and come up with the full design before they left for the summer, and so I was super freaked out because I wasn't sure if we could resolve problems because um, the scale was a huge issue, weight was a huge issue. The people were talking about like baling wire and wood suspended, and I'm like, no, this <laughs> is not. We have these paper these. There's this mandate that's already gone out. Like we're we're restricted, but we're not. So stop thinking about you know the restrictions or or like or that anything goes and anything doesn't go. And, and then once um, the design was kind of resolved, we had decided on six 10-foot panels, but the Bullock has a, a beautiful st- star of Texas outside and there's a very s- sort of amazing sweet spot that everybody takes f- photographs from, right? On the third floor and on the second floor and you can't cover that up. So then it was like, okay, these things can't hang in a round circle, they have to hang in this oval shape. And so then it was like, well, we can't have the panels that wide. And I don't actually know if that's true. I think it's just like there was a decision made because somebody's um, somebody would just be looking at panels for six months. So it, it was like, it, it, and it's all a part of the process. So the 10-foot panels went to eight feet. And it was literally like, at this point, the panels, um, I had ordered fabric. It was sitting in the studio. I had to stitch all of it. Um, so I could make loops for the poles that were going to hold the butterfly up. So I was super nervous about a stitch holding the pole, holding the panel for six months. I was just like nightmare. So, um, but Tony and I, who uh, does the installation stuff at the Bullock, she we did a bunch of tests. So she they rigged, they did tests for rigging, and then we hung panels. Realized that we had to switch materials because PVC is not. Sturdy and um, but metal is, and so we had to change a little bit of that. And then we w- brought the panels over to the Austin room, which is this huge space. Th- and thankfully, we were able to leave everything there over the course of the summer um, and literally cut two feet off and just rip the panel. So it was like very devastating because at this point, we'd already painted them and we've already sort of got this, you know, idea. And um, one other thing that sort of came up. Was um, the transparency of the ma- of the material? Like I knew that they would be transparent. I knew that you would see one butterfly on one side, but you would also be able to see its shape on the other side, and that is not an easy thing to explain to an audience that has invested time and money and people into a thing. And so, um, and. So we had to still make some adjustments, but it it worked. It all worked out, and um, I think like sticking, like being flexible and being able to compromise, and then being able to sort of stick to it at the same time is really, really important. Um, And then it's just logistics. I was really worried about having students being able to actually make this thing over the summer because none of it was made in the spring semester. It was just designed, and so over the course of the summer. I got students. I paid students with some of the funding that we got from the Bullock to come t- and um, host those sort of open family times for people to come and work, and then also they just started gluing. And then this crept into the, my fall semester installation class, where those students finished everything and then installed. Because so it was like a month into the spring, into the fall semester that um, it finally was finished, and. Yeah, there's a couple students that carried through, but I had to sort of rally the ones that had no idea what, I mean, they kind of heard about it, but they didn't care about it, they didn't, but they took ownership of it because the scale was huge. It was just, and they had no idea. And I think when you see like that shot, it's like when you got to see it like in the room, it was kind of amazing to see it like that. Do you want to talk about
1: challenges from your perspective? Yes. the one big challenge i think that teachers always have with other teachers is getting them on board Um, so that was a challenge i got the okay from my principal that i could send out the email asking them to participate um, because i had gone to this meeting that gave me the information i thought it was great for my classroom and but the whole idea is to gather a bunch of butterflies and so even my fourth grade team i had to convince Um, That was interesting because they did it. They were like, "Well, this doesn't really fit with our curriculum right now." So how, basically, Solange, tell me how this we can work this through. So I'd finally convinced my other fourth grade partner, which didn't take much because she realized that it does fit with our curriculum, and then the art teacher was up for it, so that was good. But then the rest of the school, same issue. How does this fit with our curriculum? And so, essentially what I told them is you teach literature, you teach history, and we all teach social and emotional learning constantly throughout the year. So we have to be able to find a way to tie this all in. And um, some teachers did not do it. This was not a whole school effort. They just were like, fine, it's in my box. Great. It goes into file 13 or whatever, it's gone then other teachers like okay we'll do this um it really ended up though being just more kindergarten and fourth grade and um second grade one second grade class that really like was all about this and so the fine arts extravaganza kind of yielded us a more butterflies having that that out during that event and so that was the biggest challenge and that's always challenges for teachers to convince them to s- do this other thing that just has popped in you know your mailbox and it might work out for you teachers want to stay with what they know and a lot of the time and so just expanding sometimes is difficult and I I am one like that as well but you know when there's opportunities like this where it can really be a cross-curricular sort of thing I, I tend to want to Um, influence others and myself to go for it. So that is always going to be a challenge. So,
2: Yes, Jim. This is bringing to mind for me a a project that we might be able to do in in Fort Worth. But we are not very successful at getting any of the school districts to work with us at all, uh, responding to emails or any of that type of thing. So do you think some of the success of this was the fact that it was a Bullock initiative? Yeah, we couldn't have done this project four years ago. Um, we have worked really hard to make connections with Austin ISD. Um, we work with their social studies coordinators at all levels. Um, we have a really terrific elementary social studies coordinator in AISD. Her name is Beth Hudson. Um, she helped to kind of sway some teachers who are on the side. Um, they did a full day professional development workshop with us where they committed to paying for subs. It was during the school week. Um, it, it talked about not only teaching social studies content, but how to make multidisciplinary approaches um, work better. Yeah, if, if we had just shot in the dark, we've never worked with schools before, I don't think at all we would have gotten the return that we get. Um, We've been making sure that we're meeting teachers where they are as well, so we're not, you know, this project wasn't figure out a way to come for a second time and make your butterfly at the Bullock Museum. This project was, here's something that you can do in your classroom and then bring it with you when you're already coming. Um, So that was, I think that was a big part of how it made it successful, you know, teachers still had to adjust their plans in order to do it. And you know, you've heard that even in a school that put together a huge extravaganza, not every teacher participated. Um, But we also thought about that when when we were designing the lesson plan, we didn't make it a five page long lesson plan that's gonna take you two hours or three days. It was, you can read this poem and here are some questions that you might wanna ask your students about it or you can read this short historical connections and talk to them about it, or you can just make a butterfly and talk about tolerance. Um, because a- as J as said, social emotional learning is <coughs> in every single subject. So how do we make students better citizens who care more about each other, who empathize with each other, who understand how people are feeling and why they're acting and how you impact other people? Yeah.
3: I love the fact that the kids had an opportunity to and um, maybe some sort of very informal ceremony deliver their things I want to ask a really crass director level question um did did you get any sense that the kids brought their parents back to the bullock to see the stuff and did it and did did you sense a sense of um uh, of increased attendance as a result of the project
2: no, totally not crass totally part of our plan um So, as anybody who has field trips knows, um, most of them happen in the spring after testing. Um, We've worked really hard to encourage fall visitation because it's a different kind of experience. There's fewer kids on site. We can give you more personalized attention if you want to do something in addition to just touring the galleries. Um, So we re-emailed everybody who had participated and invited them to come in the fall. Um, And we saw our highest fall visitation overall um, during State of Deception, getting the Wayback Machine, it was the election year, it was about propaganda during an election, so um, that certainly helped, but we did see a 20% increase in school group visitation in the fall. um, And certainly some of those were schools that participated. Um, We also, I can at least say anecdotally, saw people come in all the time walk our stairs and see up and you're seeing them pointing and looking for their butterfly some teachers (laughs) um, had their kids do the template on a different color so they could find them so you'd see a class come in and go ours were on red paper let's find all of the butterflies on red paper oh that's tom's oh that's jane's Um, so we didn't do as good a job as i think we could of really statistically tracking how many came both times um, but overall numbers were up um, and anecdotally we were seeing people come in and point out um, getting the parents is always that kicker right because we saw school groups that came twice um, and we did see some people who were there with their with their parent and their kid who had done it um, you know we've tried any bazillion number of ways to encourage kids who came on a field trip to come back with their parents and I mean, honestly, we haven't found the sweet spot yet. So if anybody wants to tell us what the sweet spot is, um, please talk now.
1: So what I did is I sent a mass email
2: to my parents, yeah. and I let them know
1: your child's work is displayed in this huge art installation of Bob Bullock. They've seen it. You need to come back and see it with them. So that is – it really is a relationship between the museum and the teacher that helps, you know, bring more attendance and owner and – to see what yeah. their children has done, it's like an open house almost. Yeah. So yeah. It, they they really did enjoy that. And some people did come back and see it. They told me. And some people, you know, said my mom wouldn't take me. But that's because, you know, that's just the way life is. But at least the email went out, and so I think that is the way.
2: Yeah. Yes. For the people that were there for the family programs, did you have anything to give them um, with the dates that the installation would be in so that they would know when they could come back to see what they did when they were there on one of those Sundays? Yeah, we we already had rack cards ready for that exhibit, and so we always put them at our our maker station when we were doing it. Um, And those maker stations were always facilitated, so parents could come and decide how much engagement they wanted to have with us. If all they wanted to do was make a make a nice looking butterfly and leave it for us, that was fine. Um, but we did have people there who were involved with the project who knew what our learning points were so that they could talk a little bit more about why it was important that they were doing it. Because, you know, really this is a coloring sheet that we were asking them to do and that's not typically what we do at a family program because it's so passive. But we provided that additional explanation of why this in particular was, um, why they were doing it and why it mattered. I saw some hands over here.
3: Um, So the examples that you put here are really effective and pretty inspiring. And I'm wondering how I could try to replicate something like this at my institution. But um, due to a unique situation with my institution, and I'm sure other people probably have similar challenges that have, you know, the nuances of their own site make these sorts of things challenging. But I'm curious about what your approach would be if you wanted to create this engaging sort of experience with uh, youth audiences um, where they collaborate in the making of some sort of connection to history where you only have them for that one day. So you don't have an intensive period where you could co-create something and have it curated by a college audience or have, you know, students create something they can come back and see it again. If they can't come back and see it again, what do you think you would do to try to create a plan so that students could start and finish a project in one day? I'm going
2: to let the audience answer this question too. And I'm coming down here so that my other panelists can answer. Um, We've, to a certain extent, we've done that on a mini scale by, putting up a really big sheet of paper and having it be a community mural for the day. Um, I think that's always a little more effective for the people who come at the end of the day because they see what it ultimately turned into. Um, I I mean, I think you're right, you know, ephemeral versus planned and long-term are inherently going to be different in their power. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. What's interesting, though, about what you're asking is, um, is that the experience that all the elementary k- students had and all the college students has had, though, was not finished. Yeah. Like they they did get to see the end, but but as they were making it, they had no idea that it would work or that it would be, you know, an int- like 50, 50 butterflies from a class in a in a in a bucket doesn't look like anything. So, yeah. I mean it really doesn't and and know
1: what you all were going yeah. to do with our butterflies. So that was that was something that was amazing to just see the final product. So,
0: I mean, I think that like my like I work I'm a pretty flexible worker. Like I I I feel like I have an idea that we can do this thing, but but and we knew that what the student initial idea was, but it had to shift and change and it's just like experience with materials, right? So i knew certain things would happen, but i couldn't get everybody to believe me until it happened. and so everybody had that like you know, nobody got the end of the day mural experience until the opening. Yeah. So, so and it's it's really true and then, you know, so i don't i don't know. i think it's just like that leap of faith. Well, I get, I would <coughs> Um, I would say in
1: response to that too, because I was thinking the same thing, um, is that it really is a one day project. Like reading the poem, going through the the actual project and getting the kids to do the butterfly is like a one day activity, and we're a very small museum, like we wouldn't be able to have the kind of visitation for a project like this, or frankly, the space to execute it the way I would want to, but we do have a really good relationship with our local art gallery and another art center in town where uh, down the line it would have to be planned out, um, but we could do this project as a one day project and then work with that particular gallery or space to do like a larger scale effort. So it's more of a being a piece of it, but at least implementing it in some way.
0: I mean, I think what th- one thing that came up with like the Bullock when they came to St. Ed's, it was like, who has enough uh, knowledge to be able to pull something like that off? And so, I I mean, I think it fell on my shoulders, but the students really took ownership of all of it. And so my role was really to figure out how to logistically make what they want to have happen, happen, so like relationships with art centers or relationships with other artists that are willing to work. I mean, that's actually one of the things that's come out of this is that communal based art making practice is really interesting. Social practice is really interesting. There's a lot of it going on and in small rural communities and in big cities and so, if you're willing to have a relationship with a, another sort of third party, second party entity that that is guided but takes ownership at the same time, like but it's like a you have to be flexible. It's really hard I think when you're mandated from up above, you know, and you're trying to solve all these problems for all these people or, or, or whatever their mission is. I wondered what happened to um, the
1: project at the end of the exhibition and if you are going to um, include anything um, within your course curriculum um, for, you know,
2: after the fact of the exhibition being down. It's like she's psychic because that was totally the next question. So, um, the Bullock Museum is a non-collecting institution. So, we... um, didn't have the ability or um, bylaws to be able to keep it. Um, So St. Ed's kept it Um, and that has been really interesting. I'll let Alex talk about it more, but um, it means that the project has continued onward. So some of the panels have been displayed several times beyond it Um, and it's been great for us because it was awesome to have it at the Bullock Museum, but it's even more awesome to think about a project that started um, with us continuing to have an impact. Um, I, can't, I can't speak for Solange in particular, but we received some of the butterflies with notes that specifically said, we wanna do this next year and it doesn't matter that it's not gonna go to the Bullock Museum, it's gonna become a part of a thing that our class does now.
0: Um, so that was really awesome. So the non-collecting uh, aspect of the Bullock is really interesting. Saint Edward's doesn't have any, so uh, it is rolled up in a utility closet currently, and I don't even know the state of the panels. Right? Th- I mean, the whole thing was ephemeral. Like it's made out of paper. It's literally glued to <laughs> fabric. Like <laughs> it's not. It was never meant to sort of exist. It w- and and. So when we deinstalled it, we rolled it on giant tubes, hired like a, a U-Haul and took it to St. Ed's. And I knew immediately that um, at least half of it would be displayed in the library. And so we had it, the library's not big, actually the library's five feet too short to hang the panels vertically. So we strung them end to end um, I- through the expanse of the library. And um, and that was an amazing experience. The, our dean is very supportive for the, um, the School of Arts and Humanities of our department, so she kind of pushed for this, and it was up. Our homecoming is in the f- spring, so it was up for spring homecoming. Um, it came down sometime after that, and then um, I'm trying to get it back up um, in, a, in this sort of original formation, but only uh, maybe one or two panels in the Natural Science building for the School of Natural Sciences. They're very supportive of us. Historically speaking, at St. Edward's, there's not a big support for the arts. I mean, we have a... a a performing arts program that's very successful. Um, The artists, like us art faculty, we do sort of guerrilla art projects, but it's not a norm. Um, It's very constructed in terms of like these images are sanctioned to go in these buildings and nothing else can go. So the fact that now there's this other interest in art making, there's several of us that have come on in the last 10 years that are really interested in art as a way to speak. So we do these engaging projects with students anyway. so it's, it's lived twice, and um, we've made other things from it. But uh, it's sad, actually, that it's rolled in a utility closet, because it was so impactful for people when they experienced it. Um, so in my class, this
1: has been definitely an ongoing thing. Um, when I do my World War II fictional literature unit and nonfiction unit. Um, the book, I Never Saw Another Butterfly, has now become part of that. And um, last year we didn't make butterflies, but we definitely did other visual representations of from the poem and they got to choose which book they wanted to do their visual representation of. This year, I'm now hearing what that you still have it in, oh yeah. I- like that maybe we can figure something out where a new group of students can make butterflies and find a place maybe in our schools that one of the panels can hang. Or, um, and so the, the, the students can actually see it again and the parents can realize and it can be an ongoing, like, maybe like <laughs> rotating <laughs> sort of um, art project that lives on. Because I think that this is something that is very, very important for students. This topic has to keep going because tolerance is so important and with so many issues that are going on with many different groups of people this this type of project really should not die mm-hmm. um and the, the poem the butterfly and its meaning really is what we need to kind of embody and make sure that we give hope to people um that are you know under stress and um and so we need to keep somehow this project going whether it's a butterfly adding it on to this Installation and keeping it going or finding a new medium to express, you know, tolerance and keeping people going and hope.
2: Um, so we have just a couple minutes left. I wanna finish on this writ larger concept of social justice at the museum. Um for the bullock. It's it's something that we've really pushed in the past few years, but it's it's um it's kind of been this thing that we have to do. Guerrilla style, like Alex said, as far as art on campus, Um, you know, we did we did a lecture series two years before this project called the Texas Social Justice Series, Um, and it was well received by some of our constituents and by others. Um, We got links to articles about how the term social justice is meaningless and why are you doing this, and you should be doing lectures about the Alamo. so that kind of made us think, we probably called it the wrong thing if we were trying to really reach all of our audiences, the ones who um, who want to hear lectures about the Alamo and the ones who are really ready to talk about um, social justice in Texas. Um, so this project was a good way for us to think about how to do social justice without having to say we're doing social justice, um, because I, I I don't think that it makes it less important if if you're not specifically saying this is a social justice project, um, because we still got to have that impact, we still got to talk about the past and contemporary um, connections, and, and that's the success of that project has now opened us up to be able to say, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that we do, and we can be, again a little bit more um overt about it. Yes. Yeah, the propaganda exhibit is a traveling exhibit from the US Holocaust Museum. Um, and they were very supportive of the project. We talked about we talked about it with them early on because we wanted to have an in-exhibit component. Um, and unsurprisingly as they should be they they want to know what what you're physically going to add to their exhibit space um, so they saw our early designs they saw our language um, and and because that's a big part of their mission they were really pleased about it we've actually um, you know they saw this and said we got to do something like this um, s- so yeah it was definitely a part of the conversation Um, Because it was a traveling exhibition, it wasn't fully ours to decide upon. um, But that was definitely a consideration. And if you're going to do something with a traveling exhibit in particular, um, make sure that it's the kind of thing that the museum that it's coming from (laughs) is excited about doing too. Do you guys want to say anything about, I mean, you talked about St. Ed's social justice mission, but anything else you want to wrap up social justice?
0: Um, I guess... For, as a participant in the process, and uh, and maybe this is for you guys when you go out to another entity and, and ask for that collaboration is, um, I don't know if this has been the thing that's creeping up in my own teaching practice, but I definitely think that this project has opened up a space for me to make this uh, the, a sense of voice or a sense of place of responsibility um, available for the students that I teach. So, um, So, embodying that, like, whatever that might mean, wearing, sh- like, like it's really an enclosed campus, but uh, we're in an urban space. So, like, shirts that support different groups of people that are being um, sidelined, right? Or providing materials for students to participate in other things. The Women's March here in Austin in January. Um, uh, we're trying to figure out how to do something with DACA right now. We have a, a really large um, uh, Latin American and South American population at St. Ed's. We have a huge camp program, which is supporting migrant worker, um, children from migrant worker families. So it's um, it's all wrapped up in the way that we sort of approach our teaching. But I feel like uh, having a space for this sort of uh, conversation to happen and giving people a place and a way to, ha- to do it is really an, an interesting and important one to foster and so, I, I, I th- and I know that like other, I mean, depending on wherever you are, but there will be other places that are as interested, but maybe the resources are what's limited, and I know that we are limited in our resources, so like being able to collaborate was like, it opened up a whole other level of responsibility that my students had to take on, because no matter what, the thing was going up in January or in, in September, and it had to be finished. So, they had to really... Do it, even though they weren't enrolled in that thing anymore, and and they're not used to that thinking, right? So, and that, that was a big a big challenge. Yes, um,
1: the social social justice issue that I'm going to take on with my students this year is immigration. So I find that interesting that you mentioned DACA, because that is something that the campus that I'm at, um, is doesn't have a lot of um, people who are from that group of people or, or Hispanics and other people that might be dealing with these issues. And so it is really important that we continue to educate them, and even though they might not have the situation going on with their family um, and or friends that they know, and it might be far removed from them, that we keep bringing this up. And so um, that social justice issue is, is on the forefront of what I plan to do with the literature I choose. because. Ultimately I have to teach fiction, nonfiction, I have to teach story. Um, I have to teach about you know Texas history being a fourth grade teacher, um, and I have to teach about culture. so and social emotional learning. So it, I found a way to make make that kind of tie in. So we will discuss immigration um, and with a very neutral sort of tone so that fourth graders can understand Now how this will translate, into something bigger I'm not sure yet Um, but that is something that I think that if if you are a museum and you're able to talk to your school districts and take ideas like we've kind of illustrated for you um, and future ideas um, and find the social studies curriculum person or the art curriculum specialist um, or even the English curriculum specialist and work with them directly they will be excited their job though is then to make it go to the teachers and but if you get them excited enough with an idea that they can then present to the teachers like this one then maybe they can have a few teachers like myself and the other hundred schools that participate in this project maybe they can maybe get some money from the school district from your museum if possible or even from the parents um, to make A collaborative effort because that's really what it is Um, so there are ways you just have to find that right individual and a right group of teachers that want to do this and then they can spread the word and really that is its communication and inspiration so I think that's your best bet and I wanted to talk to you about what you said about the one-day project even though the people don't see it at the end of the day if this sounds very simple but put it online they can see it at th- forever if it's online, and they can see that final product that they contributed to. And you can create some sort of like online gallery or whatever your idea is of. But yes, um, try to help your teachers. Um, providing money for substitutes, that's the big thing, because a lot of the schools don't do that. So if you can find a way to help them in that way, they will come and they will work with you. Because they, I think teachers ultimately do want to do these types of projects.
2: Well, we are at time. Um, Thank you guys all so much for coming. I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that the blue sheet in front of you is your evaluation, and AASLH values your feedback in order to have uh, an even better conference next year. Um, We'll stick around for a few minutes, so we're happy to keep talking to everybody, but thank you again. Happy conference. Thank you for being in Austin, and we'll see you in Kansas City in 2018.